Remember this day. Here's why. Because in about five years, there will be thousands of certified business coaches who are changing the world and disrupting the university system. That is going to happen. And you say, Don, how is that going to happen? It's going to happen because Business Made Simple is now certifying business coaches to take clients through all of the Business Made Simple material. That is our marketing framework, our messaging framework, our execution framework, our communication framework, basically everything that you need to scale up a business to go from zero to $10 million and even higher. That means why would you go get an MBA? Maybe you wouldn't even go get a bachelor's degree in business. You would actually just trust a coach to take you through proven frameworks that actually work. If you want to be a certified Business Made Simple coach, go to Business Made Simple Coach. BusinessMadeSimpleCoach.com. We're serious. We're going to disrupt the university system, and we're going to help businesses make more money. We're going to do it through you, through business coaches. BusinessMadeSimpleCoach.com. Apply today. Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hello, Don. J.J., today we talked to Tiffany Bova. Tiffany Bova is an executive at Salesforce, and she wrote a book called Growth IQ. And I think it's the perfect conversation for you and I to listen to. Yeah. Because... We've taken this company from zero to 13 million. This mm-hmm. year, we'll probably do 15 to 17. And really, the whole first phase of it was sort of managing chaos, just trying to get cash yes. in the door. <laughs> yeah. And then it was sort of harnessing the chaos, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. And then we began to sort of direct the chaos. Uh-huh. And be able- Well, the reality is we're not in chaos anymore. Yeah, It's in this stage of a company that you actually begin to sort of have the luxury to sit and think about how to really create a quality brand that lasts for decades and decades yeah. and decades. Yeah. And even though you know her book is called Growth IQ, she's really talking about the fundamentals of next level business. Mm. Customer experience, mm-hmm. right? Expanding your product line. So if you have a company that you go, you know, we've been doing this a while. Maybe your parents started the company and you took it over and it's Going great. You know, you're three, $4 million company. You've always been a three, $4 million company, whatever. She's going to take you to the next level. Yeah. And as I listened to it, everything that she talked about, I thought, this is what we do next. This is what we do yeah. next. This is what we do next, which is really good. Yeah. You know, this is what we need to do next. You yeah. know, for instance, customer service. Yeah. We've had interns handle that. And now yep. we're taking it extremely seriously. Yep. Kelly, our customer service, you know, who before, is amazing. And we love Kelly. That used to be really not, it wasn't an afterthought at all, but it was really like a response. We just dealt with the response after, like say we'd send out an email. Right, right. There were some problems. You know, the link didn't work the problem. and that yeah. person solved the problem after. Well, now Kelly actually meets with our directors. She's one of our directors, meets with our directors. We meet every morning at 9 a.m. for a quick check-in and she thinks ahead of yeah. things. So we're, we're talking we're being about- preemptive now. Yeah, she's like thinking about the videos and emails that we're getting ready to send in October. (laughs) And she's saying, can we make sure that this happens? And everything that she's talking about is about the customer experience, making sure that the customer experience goes more smoothly. We don't just react to it from customers now. We're creating an experience. But that's new for us. It is new for us. That's And and I would say it's okay for that to be new for us because 
from zero to five million, you have to think about cash. Yeah, you're, get the cash you're in gonna the door, die, <laughs> and then and you become a little bit more reactive to the chaos, right? Right, and right. So right. that's where we were. But now these new, we're actually processing through. How do we build a brand that lasts? How do we create a great customer experience? And how do we deliver on our promise? Well, I loved this conversation. It really is one of the more informative conversations I've had in a very long time. And we're going to act on all of this. So if you are where we are, you're going to learn a lot from Tiffany. Bova. Again, she's the author of Growth IQ and one of the executives at Salesforce. Here's my conversation with Tiffany Bova. Tiffany Bova, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Hey, before we get started talking about your book, Growth IQ, I want to talk about the state of marketing report that comes out from Salesforce. What do you have to do with that report? Why do you guys release it and how do people use it? Well, you know, this is our sixth actual edition yeah. of it. Yeah, we've collected data from 7,000 marketing leaders across the globe. And what I love most about this report is it covers all sectors. So it's small business, medium, and enterprise, uh, and then B2B and B2C. And I think there's a lot to learn from the fact that we do both, because then you can see, sometimes people, when you talk about research, they're like, oh, that's such a B2C problem, right? Or right. Oh, that only happens. We hear B2B. that all the time. It drives me all crazy. All the time, yeah. right? And so this is a great way for us to say, look, stat to stat, here's what C thinks, here's what B thinks. And I think people are surprised that Sometimes, sometimes the B2B buyers have higher expectations than B2C buyers. And I think that that's where uh, the marketers and the sellers on both sides can learn from each other. So um, the fact that we do it so comprehensively across the globe with such a good volume and then a great cross-section gives us just incredible data and insights. And we give this research away. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. and it's not just our customers, by the way, that we survey. It's a double blind, meaning one, they don't know it's a technology company and two, they don't know it's Salesforce. You know, yeah, So that gives yeah. us a really good indication of what marketers are thinking about. Well, the sixth edition, you guys really get hone into this, the quarantine and the coronavirus crisis and the way the culture has changed, which was amazingly quick for you to be able to turn that research around. Can you just give us, before we jump into your books, some insights into what we need to be thinking about? I would imagine they're very similar to actually what is in Growth IQ. But what's a few things that we need to be thinking about as we recover from this recession instigated, not caused by, the coronavirus crisis? Yeah, I'd say a couple of things. I'd say when you look year over year, even with the pandemic happening, you know, marketers have absolutely been focused on innovation, communicating with customers in real time. And you'd be like, well, Okay. You know, yeah. and it's like, it's been fairly consistent. Right. And then yeah. uh, now, now it's a lot about data and privacy and trust. Like what are people and brands doing with that data? How are they? Has using the paranoia it? increased with the pandemic? The paranoia about privacy? Has that increased? Has it gone up? I don't know if I can, you know, statistically answer that question. I'd say that we had, you know, according to the Edelman report, right, we've had a crisis of trust for some years now. Yeah. And so that's sort of one anchor in this. I think privacy now is this balance between am I willing to give up where I am and contact tracing and things like that? Because, you know, marketers may have been doing this for a really long time, but doing it from a healthcare perspective yeah. right, is very different. But I think that trust in using the data, but, you know, from a pure business standpoint, consumers and buyers basically are telling marketers, look, if you're going to collect all this data from me, you know, make my experience more personalized and better and more engaging. Right. And then I have no problem giving it to you. But if I'm just giving you all this data and you're not doing anything with it, you know, then it's not, not that important to me. So, you know, I think that the top priorities of marketers this year and then their challenges 
line up perfectly because it's it's really just about this engagement in real time across these multiple channels. And now there's so much noise out there uh, with everything we're dealing with that, you know, it's hard to stand out for the things of, of when we may get back to this kind of next future. I don't call it the new normal. I call it the next, the next future because yeah. I call That's it great. the next future because I want us to come back bigger, better, stronger. Yeah. Oh, and I think we will. I really believe that. I just think we will. I think all this will work out for the good. Well, I'm excited to jump into your book, Growth IQ, Get Smarter About the Choices That Will Make or Break Your Business. I would imagine this is a little bit of how to scale up, how to grow your business, but more philosophical. Is that right? Uh, you know, I'd say this. I'd say I tried to write a book that would be timeless, if you will, yes. because I, I use storytelling as the backbone of sort of communicating what I thought the uh, important points were out of Growth IQ. And the great thing about it is because I took stories of brands at points in time, the point in time will never change. Yes. So I didn't say like this company has done it so well and I've just got to case study the heck out of it. I basically took brands like Sephora or Shake Shack or Starbucks and say, look, at a point in time, they did this either really good or they might have missed something over here. Uh, it's kind of a cautionary tale. And so I was giving real world examples of where I've seen companies and brands um, do certain moves and and use certain growth paths in, in successful ways. And that was the way I wanted to tell the story. It's 30 stories, 10 paths three stories per path. So it's yeah. a lot of storytelling. It's a lot of stories. A lot of stories. Well, it sounds like a fantastic book. Yeah, well, it was fun to write. Yeah, we're not going to be able to cover all 10, but I do want to give our listeners a taste. You talk about the importance of customer experience, that we need to start growing our business by prioritizing the customer experience today. Can you define customer experience from your perspective, from the perspective of the book? What do you mean by that? Yeah, it, this is such a great question because I started the book with customer experience on purpose. Yeah, it seems like a priority. <laughs> it's a priority. Uh, and for me, it doesn't actually matter what brands think customer experience is. It's what the customer thinks customer mm, experience yeah, is, right? Yeah. What's important to them? And so many people sit in offices and design and journey map and, you know, what kind of path, marketing, buyer journey do we want to put people through? And it's like, look, like what journey do they want to go through? Mm -hmm. And how can you try to marry that, what you're doing and what they want in a cohesive way? So for me, it has everything to do with how customers feel when they engage with the brand, regardless of where and how they make that engagement. You know, whether it's the valet at the business or the receptionist or the cleaning crew or the customer service, marketing and sales representatives. I mean, at the end of the day, it's how does a customer, consumer, business owner feel when they engage with your brand? How does somebody who has a, a small to medium-sized business turn this into processes? I mean, you can hire a friendly valet. You can hire a friendly person at the cash register. That doesn't scale. You know, I mean, you, I guess you can continue to hire friendly people, but at some point, you know, if you go to Chick-fil-A, they're saying, my pleasure. They have actually institutionalized some sort of process, something you say that gives a positive customer experience, right? Have you seen a brand tackle that? How does Starbucks do that? How does Shake Shack do that? Well, I'd say you nailed it. it ha this has everything to do with people and process and not technology. Yeah. You know, technology helps to automate and to your point, scale. But if the people and process isn't correct, it doesn't matter how great the technology is. So saying my pleasure, uh, think about doing that at scale at Four Seasons. It's like reading someone's bag tag and saying, oh, hello, Miss Bova, welcome back you know, that simple act is then ingrained in everything that they do. And so 
take a notice of what it is and then weave it into your conversation so that I feel for a moment, wow, how does he know who, who right, I am? Right, right, right. This feels very personal. It's very personal. And even if you look at Southwest, it's who they hire. I mean, they literally start interviewing people the moment they show up at the airport, how they engage with their people, how they get in the plane, how they communicate with everyone. And then when they show up to be interviewed, it really starts with who you're going to hire and what skills you want and what kinds of personalities you want. That's sort of one thing. But once they're hired, sort of how you onboard them and share the values with the brand that they know instinctively that, hey, listen, I know my call time is only, I can only be on the phone five minutes, but this customer really needs my help. I'm gonna, I know I'm empowered to stay on the phone until this problem is solved, even if I go over my call time. As an employee, feeling like the brand has your back means that you've done a really good job communicating to them what's most important, right? Employee success and customer success. And those two things together are really powerful. So I'd say communicating over communicating so that people understand their role in customer experience and how their job impacts it. It's interesting because you start the book that way, but it's one of the last things we think about because we consider it an extremely soft skill. So we're thinking more profit margins. How do we cut costs? How can we renegotiate with vendors? hiring rock stars for certain seats, but actually saying, wait, where is the customer touching our product, touching our people? Where are those interactions happening? And what processes can we create to make those experiences better actually deeply affects the bottom line. Absolutely. And I think that's why, you know, even though customer experience has been this topic that's been bubbling around the marketing organization for a really long time. And, you know, things like the chief marketer saying, we own customer experience. That worries me, right? Because, yeah, yeah, right? Everybody owns it in that sense. Mm-hmm. Everybody has to own it. But if you own the metric <laughs> as a chief marketer, like that, I get. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. You're responsible for the metric. And so some of the problem is the soft stuff. If it doesn't have metrics behind it, people go, well, if I can't measure it, I can't manage it, then I'm not focused on it. Well, help us there, Tiffany. How do you measure whether somebody is saying my pleasure or reading the bag tag? How do these CMOs, if they're the people who are measuring it, how do they accumulate these metrics? Well, you know, net promoter score has become really popular now because, right, it's that point in time, real time. It's not a look back. And I think that has become one of the de facto things that marketers will look at. And also the thing that they're measuring. Isn't that a lag measure, though, to some degree? Not as much of a lag measure as we did a customer satisfaction survey six months ago. Right. And yeah, our customers, that's true. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so like our report, right? 7,000, like you said, fielding that and turning that around really quickly is not easy. I mean, we did not kick this off before COVID and then did it during COVID. Mm. I mean, it was already in the field. We added a couple more questions based on the time frame that we were in. I don't disagree. It might be slightly lagging, but it's the most real time we have. And then I think if you align that with customer satisfaction surveys, employee satisfaction surveys, and then things around products, you start to get a very holistic view. So is there one metric that customer experience can lend itself back to? I don't think so. I think it's a combination of lots of things. But you know, I think many people get nervous if you can't actually measure something, they go, it's not important. And I agree with you that we don't think things are, that we can't measure aren't important. And yet there is serious money to be made or lost in customer experience. And we've got to figure out how to do that. You're convicting me isn't even as I speak. How do we do that as a company? All right, next is customer-based penetration. Customer-based penetration, we've got to get the most out of our existing customers by focusing on customer-based penetration. Do you mean... Uh, I hate to say the word, but upselling and creating products for the existing customer? Or do you mean 
taking the customers that buy from us, finding like customers and continuing to market to those customers. What all do you mean by customer base penetration? Yeah, I literally mean the base. You know, one of the things, having been a, you know, many prior lives ago, I was a head of sales and marketing and customer service. And I can tell you that, you know, one of the hamster wheels I'd get stuck on is new brands. Go get new brands, new logos, new customer, new brand, new logo, new customer. You know, what was our leads? What's in our funnel? Where's the return on our investment on marketing for every dollar we're spending? You know, like all that very big and important, by the way, conversation. But I've rarely had deep conversations about, hold a second, what about if we got everybody in our base to just buy one more thing? Mm. <laughs> one more thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just one more. When I was young, when I was in my mid-20s, I accidentally in a Forrest Gump kind of situation became the president of a small publishing company. It was really kind of hilarious. And we started growing by leaps and bounds. The owner of the company, sort of an absentee owner, came into my office and said, how are we doing this? And I literally just said, well, I'm writing a letter to the 20% of our database that actually buys something. I'm just writing them a letter every week. I'm only writing the people who already buy from us when they wanted to go after new customers. And we saw this huge leap. And a lot of people don't realize they're looking for new customers, looking for new customers. Looking for when your existing customers have already gone through the curse of knowledge, they already know how to buy from you, they've already given you their credit card, They've gone through 10 of the hurdles that the other customers have to go through to start buying from you. And that's really where you can find cash, if you will. Yeah, well, it's less expensive to sell to them. They're more loyal. They'll give you forgiveness. They're willing to try new things from you. I like to say it's the gold you already have. I mean, yeah. when people were coming to the West and looking for gold, I'm making a huge assumption here, but I doubt what happened was, hey, I found gold in this mountain. Now I'm going to go look for another mountain. <laughs> right? That's a they fantastic said, analogy. <laughs> they literally said, I found the gold. I'm going to mine this mountain. And everybody followed them and set up camp. Yeah. Right. Okay. So that's one thing. The second thing is, is that there's lots to be learned in that base. You know, what are the things that, to the point, why did they choose you? What are the verticals you've accidentally fallen into? And so there's lots to be said there. But the flip of that also is I, I always pick on cell phone companies just because it's fun. But if you think about an ad for a cell phone company, it's like, hold on a second. I'm watching TV and it's like, hey, here's four new phones, nine trillion gigs of data. We'll come to your house. We'll install it. We'll rub your feet, take you out to dinner, <laughs> you know, walk your dog. You're like, I want that. Like, how do I get that? Right. right? Like. Yeah. That's what I want. So you call up. It happens to be the brand you're with from a cell phone company. You call up and go, oh, my gosh, I want that deal. The four phones, the walk my dog, the dinner, the yeah. massage my feet, come over. And they go, oh, no, no, no. This is for new customers. You, Miss Customer, who's been a customer for 20 years with a very good, solid ARPU, right? Average revenue per unit. My, yeah. my monthly recurring revenue is high. You, we don't care about. I only want to talk to people who are not customers. That's the best example I can give of when brands forget about, instead of saying, hold on a second, why do you need new four new phones? What is it that, you know what I mean? Do you need to update your current phones? That is not how to handle telling a customer, we don't care about you because you're already a customer. So Tiffany, we've been doing this podcast for over two years. Many people have tried to make that point. You've made it better than anybody else. And I almost don't want to keep asking you questions because I just want to stop here. But but there's so much more. we got to keep going. That, I mean, that is fantastic. Take care of the people who've trusted you, who have a relationship with you, and your business will grow almost by default. One quick thing. That happened because I was sitting next to a guy on a plane who was a small business owner 
a textile owner when I was writing that chapter. And we were sitting next to each other in a Southwest flight. And he started talking to me because he saw I was writing a book. And he told me the story. I have 100,000 customers. I go, oh, my God. Like, yeah. and his strategy was sell through Amazon and Walmart. And I said, well, hold on. Talk to me about the 100,000 customers. How often do they buy? How long have you had them? I don't know. I don't know. How many bought from you last month? I don't know. What's the top thing they buy? I don't know. What's the average? He didn't know the answer to any of those questions. And I said, I get why you'd go after Amazon and Walmart. A big ticket, big deal. And sometimes small businesses get very excited about that big shiny object and they forget about the customers they have. And I said, hire some interns, clean up that database. I bet you only have three or 4,000 good names and contacts at this point because the data is so dirty and old. And, you know, literally we were just flying next to each other for a 45 minute flight. He followed up with me after called, said that that's what he did. And it completely changed his business. That one simple thing, he was so focused on net new customer acquisition because he thought he, that that's what he needed to do, that he completely forgot the customers he had already acquired. So well, not only that, if he has their email addresses or mailing addresses, he can go around Walmart and Target, stop paying them so much money and teach some of those customers to actually give the money to him directly through some sort of subscription program. I don't know his business, but I, my mind started making money right there with you. Yeah, yeah yes. ways to do yeah. it. I'll be right back with the rest of my conversation with Tiffany Bova in just a moment. So I know I piqued your interest at the beginning of this podcast about our new coaching program. Yes, Business Made Simple is now certifying coaches. Let me just explain the whole thing to you. When we created StoryBrand, we created a groundbreaking framework that helps you clarify your message. That marketing and messaging framework is now being taught at major universities around the country. And the book has sold close to half a million copies, and it's still selling about 100,000 copies a year. But I want you to think of StoryBrand and that marketing framework as the marketing department or marketing building at a big business university. What if there was also an execution framework, a management framework, a communication framework? a sales framework. Think of StoryBrand as a small part of a big university called Business Made Simple University. That's what we are building. But who's the faculty at Business Made Simple University? Well, it could be you. If you are already a business coach or have years of business experience and like working with people to help educate them on how to scale up their companies, you could be a certified business coach at Business Made Simple. If you'd like to apply, we don't take everybody, but if you'd like to apply, go to businessmadesimplecoach.com, businessmadesimplecoach.com. This certification is going to position you as a sought after coach in a $15 billion industry. Just go to businessmadesimplecoach.com. I'm going to skip some things. You've got market acceleration as one of the things we need to do. Product expansion. I'm a big fan of that. Customer and product diversification. Optimizing sales. I think because you were a sales executive for so long, you know so much about sales. I'm curious about your perspective on optimizing sales. Number six, we have to optimize sales to make it easy for customers to buy your products. And it's one of the things that I always say to my clients you're making it hard to give them money. Stop making it hard to give you money. It's the reason that you're not growing. What do you mean when you talk about optimizing sales? So I usually start with two stats. One is, and if you're a small business and you have one, two, 10, 15, 20 sellers, or you have 500 or 5,000, 
the average from our state of sales report actually is about 65 or 66 percent of a seller's time is spent on non-selling activities. Hmm. That's number one. Mm-hmm. A stat from the CSO the sales organization, they have a stat out that's like 54% of sellers will miss quota. Okay, 66% time spend non selling, 50% of them are going to miss quota. You I go. wonder if there's a correlation. I wonder if there's a correlation. <laughs> <laughs> right? So, yeah. so, my comment back is optimizing has a lot to do with how do I just remove 10, 15% of that non-selling time, give it back to the sellers? And you know, that's interesting because you're actually talking about, I thought you were going to go into, you know, there's not a, a good buy now button or you're making people click through three times or you're making people enter, you know, more than just their zip code. You're actually talking about your sales team is not optimized. Yes. I talk about both. I talk about both because there's obviously, you got to make it easy to buy. Right. Like, that's kind of a given, Right. But I'm just talking about the people because many businesses, I mean, one of the concepts behind Growth IQ was 85, 86% of businesses, small businesses, small, medium businesses will hit a growth stall at some point in their history. And it was like in the mid 80s percentile. And so how do you recover from a growth stall? They would usually say, oh, well, let me cut costs as you began this conversation, spend more marketing dollars, get more in the funnel, or three, hire more salespeople. Those were sort of the three levers everybody always pulled. And I'm like, well, I get it, but why hire another salesperson when you have four people who are under, you know, underutilized, right? 60% of their time spent on selling and they're at least 50% hitting quota. Like you're never going to get 100% of them hitting quota at 100% of time sp- selling. But it's like you need to increase the amount of time selling so that you can increase the amount of time on the quota. What does a sales director need to do to optimize their sales team? Yeah, the first thing I'd say is what is your salespeople doing every day? What is your percentage? I would literally ask them, how much time are your sellers on average selling? And if a sales director does not know that, then they're not using the tools appropriately because it would tell them. And you could ask your sales team. And so then it's like, as a director, as a sales leader, you need to spend your time just like a marketer does in the buyer journey. You need to sell it in the sales process because I guarantee you my life, two things for sure. I know one is customers do not wake up every day and go, Oh my God, today's the day I'm going from stage two to stage three in the sales (laughs) process. Okay. I know that for a fact. Right. And the second thing I know for a fact is they also do not go, I love the marketing funnel. It's just so smooth. Right, right. <laughs> and I start at the top, you know, at the A, and I work my way down Ada, and I go out the box. They don't say that either, right? This is all internal stuff, mechanics we've put around to measure and manage. Buyers, customers don't care about that stuff. That's all about us. And so how do you remove that heightened focus on the process and make sure it's seamless and frictionless to the customer means you have to know what that process is and and understand, you know, when someone says we have a eight stage or nine stage sales process, I'm like, oh my God, I've met companies where they're north of 25 stages because they're splitting that hair. So marketers can justify the spend. Salespeople can justify their existence. It's like, it's so awful, right? Versus saying, hold on, like we're trying to serve customers. That's what this is about. Are we growing? Are your customer satisfaction scores going up? Is net promoter going up? Are we selling more to our base? Are our average deals going up? Like that's what's important. Not how many leads, how many clicks, how many opens in the funnel. So that's what I mean by optimizing sales is literally taking the people that you already have and how do you optimize their behavior using tools and processes to improve performance 
simultaneously doing the same thing on the marketing side. I love it. Well, I want to talk finally, and there's 10. We've only talked about a few of them. The book is called Growth IQ, and I'm speaking with Tiffany Bova. You can get the book on Amazon. Sorry, you're going to add another book to your bedside table here from listening to the podcast, but this one will be worth it. I do want to talk about one that I think is scary to me, and it might be scary to other people listening, and you call it coopetition. Oh, yeah. You actually cooperate with your competitors in product development and IP sharing. Tiffany, have you lost your mind? No. <laughs> and what's really great is during this pandemic, you've seen brands collaborate. It is true. Competitive brands more so than ever. And this has to do with the fact that if you really stop and think about it, there's no way one company can satisfy every customer's needs. That's right. It's not possible. I believe it. I was joking earlier. I've actually been on the phone multiple times with competitors sharing how we did what we did so that they could follow suit. It builds goodwill. They return the favors later. There's something really special about that. Can you specifically tie this into, can you convince our listeners, look, if you cooperate with some of your competitors, you build those relationships, you help them out, it will increase your business. Is that because they are also cooperating with us, giving us information that we need? How does that directly connect? So part of the pushback I get for coopetition is who owns the customer? Hmm. Yeah. If we're working together on a deal, who owns it? I'm always like, the customer is the only person who owns the customer. <laughs> you may think you own them, but, but you know that's a whole other Oprah, I like yeah. to say. Right? Okay. So I would say that this is really one plus one. And it isn't so much that they're giving you information and you're giving them information. It has everything to do with, look, we may share a joint customer. We're both in their servicing. And so let's make sure we're aligned because our offerings potentially have to work together. I mean, you could even pick something like Microsoft and Salesforce. Mm, okay. Yeah. How many people use Outlook? Lots. And how many people use Salesforce? Lots. And how many people who use Outlook also use Salesforce? Yeah, Lots. And so if we can make it easier for you know, those two applications that are very, going back to optimizing sales, right, that are very much a primary use tool for sellers, if we can make that integration tighter, the customer benefits from it. Yeah. And so you see it in technology all the time. I mean, can you imagine if we didn't have a USB drive, <laughs> right? Look at yeah. HP has it, Dell has it, IBM has right. it, Apple. I mean, everybody yeah, has it, right? That's a great analogy. And yeah. so that is cooperation. That is thinking about, I don't want to carry 29 cords around because I have a different phone than my laptop, than my tablet, than my PC, than my desktop, than my television. But if the USB is consistent, I can take stuff from place to place, right? And so technology has always done it, but now we're seeing it in supply chain and manufacturing, really solving complex problems and in integrating, if you will, a stack that will serve the customer. So it isn't, I'm not saying to you, go partner with someone who is a head-to-head, 100% competitor to you, but if you're complementary and you serve the same customers, then there's value there to be had. And you see it as a, growth engine right now, you know, working right. with food delivery companies. I'm a restaurant, never did it before. You know, well, they were delivering other people's food. So they kind of competed with me. Well, gosh, I really need them now. Or let's band together as five restaurants. Yeah. Why, even though we're in the same block, like we are all trying to stay alive here. So how do we work together? And so you see it now more than we normally see it. But there's so many use cases of the fact that if you just look at your daily lives and look at all the brands in front of you right now, and they're all working together. That is cooperation at its finest. I love it, Tiffany. Well, the recurring theme that I kept hearing you come back to was care about the customer, care about the customer, think about the customer, what's going to give the best value to the customer, how can you serve the customer. And no matter what, that's what it comes back to. 
The book is Growth IQ. My guest has been Tiffany Bova. Tiffany, you are brilliant. When you write your next book, will you come back on? Of course. I'm welcome to come on anytime. You have to join me on mine too. Oh, I'd be honored. All right, Tiffany, thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. I love the, you know, the my pleasure at Chick-fil-A mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. the things that Starbucks are doing and the things that she talked about. It made me curious in our business. Yeah. You know, business made simple. We have the online university. We're starting the coaching program. We have StoryBrand certified marketing guides. We have the StoryBrand framework. You know, what could we institutionalize to make the customer experience that much better, right? Mm. And so after this interview, I'm really committed to getting a war room. A war room, by the way, is our way of saying get 10 smart people in a room and a whiteboard. (laughs) You know, having a war room day on how we actually create repeatable processes that delight our customers. Yeah. And I love that we're, we have the luxury of being able to do that yes. now. Yeah. Know, and maybe we should have done it, you know, in the chaos of scaling up. We did pieces of it. We did pieces of it for well, sure. Well, we certainly, all, we, we hired people who loved people. Yep. Right? Yeah. But I don't know about the processes. The processes are, were not there. No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to be there. Yep. I love that interview. And Tiffany, we'd love to have you back anytime. And I hope that was helpful for you, our listeners, as well. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's latest record, Dive Deep Hushed, on Spotify or on iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business.